You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. We are in a Sunday morning sermon series called Hold Firm, getting a grip on the confession of our faith. And in this series, we're studying some of the foundational principles and doctrines uh, which guide our faith and our practice. Uh, We have said the the importance of what we believe as it relates to how we behave. Uh, And that's really true in really every area of life when you think about it. The things that you choose to do each day are most likely driven by something that you believe, that you believe to be true. Uh, Even the simplest of things, uh, you brush your teeth, I hope, because you believe that to have minty fresh breath is better than having halitosis, right? I mean... Uh, it's a much easier way to win friends and influence people when uh, you're not making them gag. Um, and so it, that's based on a belief, right? It's also just good hygiene. That's how you save your teeth and that kind of thing. Um, if you are one of those who strives to do your job, if you're still in the workforce, to the best of your ability and you strive to be prepared and to be punctual and all of those things, those actions are probably driven by a belief, um, and hopefully it's driven by the biblical belief that no matter what we do, we should do it to the best of our ability for the glory of God. Uh, and so our beliefs matter very much. Uh, now, it's easy to approach a doctrinal study like this and think, well, our pastor, he's just talking about the theory of Christianity right now. You know, I just want him to, to tell us some great stories and make us feel good about ourselves, and then we can go home and watch the Cowboys at noon. Uh, but the foundation for this series of messages uh, is, is found in Titus chapter 1, verse number 9. And so if you'll find that word, uh, the, the word there on the screen, it says, He must hold firm. This is Paul talking to Titus, uh, the, the younger Titus in the faith. And he's given him these qualifications for church leadership. And he says, And he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And then he tells him why. He says, So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So check this out. You come to me this next week and say, you know, Pastor, I'm just not sure that I really believe this whole thing about the Bible being the Word of God. Well, hopefully, lovingly, I'm going to rebuke you and say, yes, we do believe it is the Word of God, all right? And so uh, that's, that's why we're doing this series of messages. Doctrine really means teaching, uh, it means instruction. It means that which is taught. And it, and it carries the idea of a, of a developed set of truths or practices which are to be learned and followed. And we've said that we find those beliefs uh, to be clarified for us in what's called the Baptist faith and message. Now, we understand that the Baptist faith and message submits to the Word of God. Right? It, is, it is not over and above the Word of God. It submits to it. It is born out of the Word of God. It, it's not authoritative in the same sense that the Word of God is. It's not inspired in the same way that the Word of God is. Um, it just helps us clarify uh, what we believe that the Word of God teaches us in terms of doctrine. And so uh, in the second message, really after kind of an introduction to this series, we looked at Article 1 called the Scriptures. What do we believe about the Bible? There are a lot of different beliefs about the, the scriptures. 
In fact, some battles have been fought through the years, not just in Baptist life, but, but worldwide as it relates to the authority of Scripture. And we talked about that some a couple of weeks ago, how uh, for centuries the, the big question was, who is Jesus? And then the question became, well, what is the church? Who, who, who belongs to the church? And then, then the big question for the last uh, many years now has been, what is the Bible? What do we believe about the Bible? Is it really the Word of God? And, and so the, the article itself states this, the Holy Bible was written by men divine divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its master and for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the truth center of Christian union and the supreme standard, this next phrase is important, the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. So there, the Baptist faith and message submits to the authority of the Word of God. And then it goes on to say, all Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. And so again, we believe that Jesus Christ is the central figure of Scripture. All right, you go back into the earliest pages of even the Old Testament, and you find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what we call the Proto-Evangelium. That's the first mention of the gospel, and there you find a, really a reference to uh, the coming Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so he's the central figure of Scripture. We learned four important descriptive words for the Scriptures. Uh, the Word of God is inspired, that is, it's God-breathed. Uh, it's not just inspiring, it's inspired, it's breathed out by God. It is truthful, totally trustworthy. Uh, it is authoritative and it is complete. And so we believe then that Scripture is God's inspired and completed revelation of Himself to humanity. And it's through His providence and sovereign direction that God through the ages has preserved for us His inerrant and infallible Word. And so then what does that mean for us in terms of our practice? It's not enough to just know that, Right? Again, we don't want just some, some head knowledge. We want it to impact how we live. And so we are then to, we're to know it, and we're to understand it, and then we're to practice it. Uh, and so uh, that is article number one, the scriptures. Last week, we looked at article two, uh, just entitled God. Okay, that's theology proper. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His free creatures. To Him, we, are, uh, we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. Then it says, the eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. And then we looked at uh, basically seven uh, big views of God. Okay, uh, We said that there's certainly atheism in the world in which we live. That is uh, a view that says there, this is a world without God. There is no God. Uh, atheism. Atheism means no God. And then there's uh, pantheism. Uh, that means that, that it is a world that is God. Okay, That would be those who worship the creation instead of the creator. Okay, That tree is God. That river is God. That's, that's pantheism in its purest form. And then there's deism. That is a world on its own made by God. 
Now, I would submit to you that a lot of professing Christians really are practicing deists. Okay, They believe that there's a God, they believe that there's a higher power who created all this, but they basically live out their lives, practically speaking, as if God doesn't exist, or he doesn't have anything to do with this world in which we live. Okay, uh, we, we, we many times call it moral therapeutic deism. Okay, uh, that's, that's seen in the world today, and it's infiltrating the church to a large degree. Then there's finite theism. Uh, that is a belief that we have a world, but with a finite or limited God. God is somehow limited in his power. He's somehow limited in his knowledge. Uh, he's somehow limited by time and space. It can be any number of those things. Uh, and there's, uh, it, it gets kind of convoluted when it comes to some of these. Then there's panentheism. Okay, that is a world in God. And so this belief is that events, changes in the universe affect and change God. In other words, as the universe grows and as the universe learns, God also increases in knowledge and being. Um, crazy. Um, then there's polytheism. Polytheism is the belief that we live in a world with many gods. And you see this particularly in, in some of the Eastern religions and uh, things of that nature. And then, of course, there is theism. That is a world with an infinite God. Okay, so uh, we said that there are two questions that must be asked and answered as it relates to God. Uh, the first one, of course, is does God exist? And, and you may be here this morning, and you, while you're sitting in a worship service, you may be wrestling with that question. Does God exist? I'm not going to assume this morning, because you're sitting in a pew at First Baptist Church of Van Alstine, that you believe God exists. You may not. That's a question that you need to answer for yourself. Does God exist? And the second question is, what is God like? If God does exist, if there is a God, what is that God like? Uh, and you've got all kinds of different views on that. That's what we were just talking about with uh, these different beliefs. And so we believe that God can be understood in terms of who he is and what he does. Uh, he is intelligent, spiritual, personal, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite. Okay, what, what does God do? Well, he creates. God rules. He redeems. He, he judges. God gives life. He loves. He reveals himself. Now, that's a view of God that a lot of people find really foreign, particularly those who ascribe to, to various world religions, because they can't conceive of a God who desires to have relationship with us. Remember, we talked about some who view God entirely and completely as transcendent, okay? Okay, but, but not eminent, okay? You can't, can't be approached, and, and you can't have relationship with God. And so with that, because God reveals himself to us uh, through his word, and he, he came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he desires a response from man. Okay, why do you suppose that Jesus asked so many questions? He asked questions like, who do men say that I am? I think he was wanting a response, at least from their hearts, right? Who do men say, who do you say that I am? He made it more personal. So God desires a response. And, and, and one of the first responses should be, Repentance. Because if we understand Scripture, then we know that sinful man is separated from holy God. Okay, and the only way that we can be reconciled or brought together is through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. And so we are to then repent of our sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures make it clear that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. I always say it this way, there will be nobody in heaven strutting around going, I pretty much deserve to be here, okay? Like, you know, God kind of owed me this. That's not going to be the case. Okay, so God desires a response from man. Repentance, love, obedience, worship, 
We said this morning, worship is a response to who? To, to, to God. To God, not only for what he has done and is doing in our lives, but for who he is. Uh, God is, is holy. God is just. All these things that we've been talking about. And then, of course, reverence because of God's self-disclosure. When we understand God and who he really is, that he's not just a God of love, but is a God of holiness, then we don't, we don't approach him in any kind of a prideful, arrogant sort of way. The Bible makes it clear that God will not be a debtor to any man. He's not going to owe you one, okay? Uh, and so we, we approach God with humility. Um, and you just go back and look at Isaiah, and he says, wow, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I, I mean, it's just it's, it's overwhelming uh, to think of that. And so uh, the one and only living and true God is revealed in Scripture as a trinity of three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet still one, a unity. So we believe God is a tri-unity, not three gods, one God, uh, three persons. And so the biblical witness is clear. Whatever it is that constitutes God as God, the Father, God the Father is all of that. Whatever it is that constitutes God as God, God the Son is all of that. Whatever it is that constitutes God as God, the Holy Spirit is all of that. And so we would say it this way, God the Father is not God the Son, nor is he God the Holy Spirit, but is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. Okay, so three distinct, uh, but yet one unity. So I understand. I'm right there with you on this, but the general description about God that we've just reviewed very quickly right there is mind-boggling. Okay, trust me. I don't have that all figured out, how that all works, okay? I don't have a firm grasp on the Trinity, okay? Um, so, but what I want us to do to help us get a more clear understanding is I want us to focus on one aspect of God, and that is how he reveals himself as Father, Okay, the article in the Baptist Faith and Message is Article 2A. Okay, there's Article 2 is God, Article 2A is God the Father, then B is God the Son, and then uh, C is God the Holy Spirit. And so here is Article 2A of the Baptist Faith and Message. It says, God as Father reigns with providential care over his universe, his creatures, and the flow of the stream of human history according to the purposes of his grace. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and all-wise. God is Father in truth to those who become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is fatherly in his attitude toward all men. Now let's stop right there for a moment. and I want us to make sure that we've laid everything out there in terms of our understanding of God as Father. I realize that the concept of God as Father is really difficult for some people. Primarily because you have not had a good experience with your earthly father. I don't want to crowd this size. There are some people who would say, man, the relationship with I, I had with my dad was less than ideal. Okay, Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, I never knew who my birth father was. Never met him. That may be you. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, you may struggle with this concept of God as father. Okay? It may be a difficult thing for you. Um, and, and, and it's kind of like this. Um, imagine a, a dad who would take one of his children to the park, for example, and would encourage him to climb up on a piece of equipment, and then would encourage that same child to jump from that piece of equipment into their arms, all the while, uh, you know, at least pretending that he can be trusted. 
But then when it's time for that child to take that leap of faith into that father's arms, he moves out of the way and watches them fall and then says, now that'll teach you not to trust anyone. And that's a horrific illustration, but some of you can identify with that. Because that's more the view that you have of a father than, than the biblical picture that we have here of God as father. Okay, and so, so I understand that. And so while none of our earthly fathers are perfect, um, God does use this image, this, this, this language for a particular reason. Now, it's in this area of, of what we call familial language that Bible translators have some difficulty because different cultures view this very differently. Like, for example, in the English language, and in, in, in our context, we can generally know that when you refer to a man as, as your dad, you might be referring to him as your biological father, or you might be referring to him as the father figure who basically raised you, right? Okay, so like, uh, as an example, my, my birth mother, she passed away uh, when I was just 12, uh, and so then my dad remarried a couple, three years later, and so then I have a stepmom. Now, depending on the context, I may refer to her as my stepmom, but, but more often I just refer to her as my mom. Okay, And depending on, again, the context, then everyone knows and understands what I mean by that. Okay, She's the, the, the mom who really for the biggest part of my teenage years particularly was there to, to help raise me. Okay, Well, that's not true in every culture. Okay, some people have a real struggle with, and so depending on how the translators do it, uh, as an example, the, the text said that talks about Jesus staying behind after they had gone to, uh, to, to Jerusalem, you know, and he's, he was like, Jesus is lost, remember that? And then his, his, it talks about his, his father and mother, Joseph and Mary, going to find him. And because of the way that that, that can be translated, uh, it can lead some people to believe that Jesus was the result of a sexual relationship between Joseph and Mary. And so they would say, well, this contradicts other teaching in Scripture, that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so it's because of a misunderstanding of some of these terms. So very important for us to understand these things. God the Father. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Now, I want us to look at this from just a little bit different angle. We could spend a lot of time this morning describing uh, God the Father, uh, in terms of his attributes and things. We've already looked at some of that last week as we looked at theology proper. So this morning, I want us to come to a, a better understanding of what we mean when we say we're God's children. Okay. Now again, some of you probably said that. Maybe you've even said, we're all God's children. Maybe that's a firmly held belief of yours this morning, that, that all of mankind, it, we're all God's children. But is that really true? Okay, hopefully I'm going to help you come to a, a more clear understanding of, of what that means. Let's look at it again. Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, and so the biblical picture of God as father, uh, as, as, as difficult or as strained as your earthly relationship may have been or may be with your earthly father, the biblical picture of God as father should bring to mind a loving father who has no desire to hurt his children. Who wants, who wants only the best for them. Okay? 
But also with that, you've got to remember that the father's love for his children is not a pampering love, it's a perfecting love. God's word makes it clear that whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens, right? And so God is not some sort of doting daddy who just wants to just give us anything and everything that we might want. Like some of you grandpas, okay? I'm kind of looking forward to that day when I can spoil a grandchild, uh, Lord willing. Okay? That's not the biblical view of God. Some people think that God is just consumed with our happiness, and he just wants everything to be wonderful. And, and, and if they don't see that in their life, then they tend to doubt whether God even exists because they feel like, man, if there really was a God, then I wouldn't have trouble in my life. You know, everything would be awesome all the time. But, but we know that that's not reality, right? We had an example of that in our own family just yesterday. Um, Addie went to some of her best friend's birthday party, and uh, it happened to be at the, the skating rink in Sherman. We had told her ahead of time, okay, you're only going to get to go for an hour, Okay. Well, when we explained it on the front end, she was happy with that. But then she gets there, and she's having a ton of fun. You know what I'm saying? I mean, skating, dancing with her friend, just having a great old time. And the reason that we had to cut her fun short was because we got word late Friday night that her older sister, Ashley, had made the homecoming court at Washita, at, at where she's at college, which, which is, is a pretty big deal, okay? And which also meant that we have like a week to get her address, okay? So Christy's like, hey, I, I've got to go meet Christy in Texarkana. We've got to find her address and all this kind of stuff. So it was kind of an emergency, sort of last-minute kind of trip thing. And, um, but that wasn't good enough for Addie. And she loves her sister, don't get me wrong. But when we left that skating rink yesterday, I was praying nobody would see us because they would think we were abusing our kid. Okay? <laughs> And so we, we spent some time in the car, pretty much the whole time, in fact, from Sherman to Van Alstine at least, explaining to her that sometimes it's just not all about you, baby, <laughs> okay? And that you should be grateful that you got that hour at your friend's party and that you got to have some fun there because we very easily could have said, we just can't go today. We didn't do that, you know? But boy, I mean, just big old tears, just, but they're all having so much more fun than me, and I got to go to all those dumb stores. I mean, she was just really showing how much she needs Jesus, um, is what she was doing. You see, now, if I'm, if I'm just the doting daddy, and my love for my daughter is just entirely a pampering kind of love, I would have just capitulated to her. I would have just said, oh, baby, whatever you want, yeah, you're right. You go skate until next Thursday if you want to, sweetie. That's fine with me. But I couldn't do that, right? I mean, even just a few months ago, bless her heart, she, she had to have some... She's not here this morning, so I can, I can use her as a sermon illustration. Um, she had to have some pretty significant dental work done. I mean, like the kind where she had to be put out by an anesthesiologist kind of dental work. I mean, there was a part of me that wanted to go, this is going to cause my daughter some pain and some discomfort. And I can't allow that. No. No, absolutely not. As much as I wanted to do that, I knew that I couldn't. Because if I'm going to be a good dad, I have to allow her to experience maybe even some pain so that that's what's best for her. You've got to get this problem corrected. And it's the same way in our relationship with God. God's love for us, the Father's love for us, is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. And we see that picture throughout Scripture. And we go back to the Old Testament, and there, there's an intimate relationship described there, pictured between God and particularly the people of Israel. 
Okay, uh, in Exodus chapter 4, you know the, the context there. The, the children of Israel have been enslaved in, in Egyptian bondage, and God has raised up a, a leader in the person of Moses, and he's, uh, he's given him instructions now to go and have his people delivered. And he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You see the picture there? Then in the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, verse 13, um, in an effort to bring God near to the hearts of his people, the psalmist says there, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, he says, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, it says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all of the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the uh, clay, and you are potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Then you move into the New Testament. That's certainly not an exhaustive list there. But in the New Testament, in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 9, we've got the, the, the model prayer, and it says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then Paul, in writing to the Galatians, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. There's that same language that we just read a moment ago in the book of Romans there. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, same language, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Then in writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Okay, so two, two main points that I want you to get today help us understand God as Father. The first one is this. God is fatherly, over all creation. God is fatherly over all creation. So when we say we're all God's children, okay, there is a sense in which God is father and that he is responsible for giving life. Okay, God is the author of life. Remember last Sunday when Paul said there in the book of Acts, chapter 17, he said, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything, uh, he made for, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined uh, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And then Paul went on to say there at Athens, he said, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And then back to the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2, verse number 10, it stated, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So there's a form of universal fatherhood and brotherhood, which in its, in its proper boundaries should be recognized. 
But that is in no way to be confused with the fatherhood and the brotherhood that is secured in Christ Jesus. Now, when I was growing up, there was a song that we sang at my home church, and you're probably familiar with it. It's called The Family of God. We sang it regularly. In fact, I seems like we sang it at the end of at least every Sunday night service. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And then there's, there's a line in there that says, You will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and these folks are so dear. Thank you very, very much. Um, yeah, and, and so th- that's the point. That, that, that's the family of God. What that's talking about is the redeemed. That's talking about those who, who are adopted as sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Okay, so um, understand there, there is this form of, of universal fatherhood, but not to be confused with, with uh, the fatherhood and brotherhood that is secured in Christ Jesus. All right, so here's the second point this morning. God is Father over all who believe. That's where we're going to focus our attention in these final few minutes on these, these few verses in Romans chapter 8. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verse number 14, God's children, Paul says here, are led by the Spirit. Quite literally, are being led by the Spirit. Okay, It says in verse 14 here, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And now what does that really mean? Well, it's written in a tense that, that means that which already exists. Okay, it's it's called the the present passive indicative uh, of a word ago. It, it's it already exists. And so, remember back when we studied the book of James, we talked about how there are some who are just professors of Christianity. I mean, they say with their mouth that they're they're followers of Christ, but there's really no evidence in their life. So they're just merely professors and not possessors of the faith. Well, someone who is just a professor of faith in Christ, who just is giving it lip service, may be moral. In fact, they probably are. They may be generous. They, they may be and, and very likely are active in church. But they're not really being led by the Spirit. You see, God's Spirit sovereignly leads His children in many ways, sometimes in ways that are direct and unique. And, and, and I hope that you've experienced that. But the primary ways by which He promises to lead us are through illumination and sanctification. Now, what do we mean by Illumination. Remember, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, said, the things of God are not discerned by the natural man or the unsaved man. Okay? It's, it's basically like a foreign language in many respects. Okay? And so, but the Spirit is, is the one who illuminates the truth of Scripture. We've already determined, Article 1, that, that, that this is God's revelation of himself to man. And the Holy Spirit is our divine interpreter. All right? And so through illumination, helping us understand, come to understand the things of God as revealed to us in his word. And then sanctification. That's a word we talk about quite often. There's justification. That's the moment in which you uh, turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ and you are justified or you're made just as if you'd never sinned. Your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But that begins a process that we call sanctification whereby we are transformed, being transformed, into the image of Jesus Christ. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a process. It's a growth process that should be evidenced in our lives if we are true possessors of the faith. And it's the indwelling Holy Spirit that makes that possible. So depending on where you are in your journey with Jesus Christ, hopefully you can look back and go, you know, there are some things that were a part of my life back then that aren't now, by the grace of God. That's because the Holy Spirit is leading you 
As Paul says here, those who are truly sons are being led by the Spirit. Right? And, and it, you may be further down the road in the journey. And, and you would say, man, I look back and I go, well, there's some things that, that should have been in my life, but they weren't, and some things that were in my life that shouldn't have been. And by the grace of God, he's molding and shaping me and refining me. And maybe you look back and you go, you know, the fruit of the Spirit that's described in Scripture for us there? I didn't see much of that back there. <laughs> wasn't a whole lot of love, wasn't a whole lot of patience, long-suffering, gentleness. Those were not things that really described me or were patterns of my life. But now, by the grace of God, through this process of sanctification, I'm starting to see some of that fruit in my life. And I want others to see that fruit in my life. And So again, the idea is this pattern of our lives indicating a fruitfulness that can only be attributed to God's working in our lives. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and, and so this is a pattern that we should see. God's children, those who can truly call God Father, uh, are those who are being led by the Spirit. Here's the second thing. God's children are given access to God by the Spirit. Now, in verse number 15 here of our text, notice he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, it, it was just a, a few months ago that a, a team of our people, we got to go over to West Africa, and we were on the slave coast. And we actually, uh, as part of our tour that one day, we, we came to this big tree, this place in the, in the middle of town there, where the slaves would actually be brought, and they would be auctioned off. Or they would be, you know, the, I mean, just think about, um, about what that means, Think about, the, about how that relates to us spiritually. The Bible makes it clear that prior to placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin. We, we are enslaved to sin. But what did Jesus do? Jesus was the great emancipator. Jesus was the one who broke those chains of slavery. And so it's as if he came to the auction block and he said, I'm buying that one and I'm buying that one and I'm setting them free. I'm setting them free. And so Paul is saying here, hey, you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. <laughs> Instead, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's for this reason that uh, the writer of Hebrews said this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. No, no longer a slave. If you sang that song recently and you had no idea what that meant, here it is. I'm no longer slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave. I've been adopted as a son. Now, the term adoption is filled with the ideas of love and grace and compassion and intimate relationship, right? Some people think of adoption in terms of like second-class status. But you've got to understand that that's not the biblical picture. In fact, in Roman culture, an adopted child sometimes had greater prestige and privilege than the natural children. Um, because of this, Roman adoption required several prescribed legal practices. Some of the practices that we have even today in our modern culture uh, were born out of that. And so the first step totally severed the adopted child's legal, even social standing or relationship with his natural family. 
And the second step placed him permanently into his new family, legally. And it required, in Roman culture, the presence of seven reputable witnesses who could testify to any challenge of the adoption after the father's death. Now, I've been a part of something like this. A number of years ago, some dear friends of ours with whom we served in in a a church over in Flower Mound, um, they had tried for a number of years to have children of their own, and uh, God led them to the process of adoption. And... um, so we got to go down. Uh, I, I had the privilege of going down to Parkland Hospital in Dallas, going down into the a little chapel there uh, where there was a placement ceremony. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life because it, 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 it drew me back to exactly what we're talking about this morning. So here's this young couple, unexpected pregnancy, all that goes along with that did not have the the means or the knowledge, even the maturity to to properly raise a child in this world. And thankfully, through some some good advice and some godly wisdom, uh, they were encouraged to give up this this baby for adoption. And so I stood there, and they placed that little girl in my arms. And actually, this couple, they're crying. Okay, it's difficult to, to give up a biological child. It's not easy. Okay. And I prayed a prayer of blessing over this precious life and, and thanked God for the gift of life and, and, and what this all meant and drew it back to the gospel here. And then I had the privilege of then placing that little girl in the arms of her adoptive parents, our dear friends. So there was just this, I mean, bundle of emotions happening that day in that little chapel. And, and that, that's the picture that we see here. I, I mean, it's just an amazing thing. We, we see adoptions in Scripture. We think of Moses, right? Moses was adopted. His Hebrew mother placed him in a waterproof basket and set him into the Nile, and he floated down to where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, and she saw this baby, and she had pity and compassion on him. And then Miriam, Moses' sister, was there and said, hey, how about if I get a Hebrew mom to take care of your your adopted son? And so check this out, moms. (laughs) Moses' mom got paid for taking care of him. (laughs) Pretty amazing story, isn't it? Okay, so that adoption transpired basically because of pity and compassion, which is certainly a part of it. Okay, and th- then we, we have this individual named Esther, whose parents died, and as a result of that, she was essentially adopted by her cousin Mordecai. Okay, and so that was really done more out of familial obligation. Okay, but then you've got this guy named Mephibosheth. Say that three times real fast, okay? Mephibosheth. He was the crippled son of Jonathan and the grandson of King Saul. And so when David learned about Mephibosheth, he he gave him all the land that belonged to his grandfather Saul, and he honored this son of his dearest friend Jonathan by inviting him to dine regularly at the king's table in the palace at Jerusalem. What an amazing story. Okay, So we see this, this whole concept of adoption in Scripture. Okay, now, what about this, this, this terminology that we see here at the end of verse 15? The spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Well, Abba is, is an informal Aramaic term for, for father. Okay, it speaks of intimacy. It speaks of, of a tenderness and a dependence and a lack of fear or anxiety. And so our modern equivalents would be like daddy, Okay, I, we all probably have different names for our parents. Um, 
Daddy, Papa. That, that, that's kind of the idea here. Now, with that in mind, I want you to listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Listen carefully now. Okay, if you're a child of God, this is what you got. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Isn't that awesome? Adopted. And it's by that spirit of adoption that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus himself used those same words when he cried out to God, the Father, in the garden. Abba, Father. Okay, God's children are assured by his Spirit. Look at verse 16 now. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this is rich. What he's saying here is God's indwelling Holy Spirit is constantly present to provide inner testimony to our divine adoption. So just as witnesses were required for a Roman adoption, the Holy Spirit serves as the witness to our adoption as children of God. Okay, so if you don't sense that Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit and you never sense the convicting power of the Holy Spirit... Uh, you don't see any of the fruit of the Spirit being born out in your life, then it's very likely that you're not truly a child of God. Okay, that's sobering, I realize, but that's biblical truth. The Holy Spirit serves as the witness to our adoption as children of God. Now, let's tie it all together. Generation and regeneration are tied together. Generation is the bringing to life at the starting point of physical existence. Right? God is the author of life. We know that. Okay, we see in Scripture that, that he's knitting us in our mother's womb. Okay, that kind of language. Okay, but regeneration then is the bringing to life at the starting point of spiritual existence. It is biblically what we call being born again. Okay, that's not terminology that Jimmy Carter made popular back in the 70s. Okay, remember he said, I'm, I'm born again. Okay, that's, that's Bible. Okay, Jesus used that terminology when he was talking to Nicodemus that night. Okay, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So check it out. If you're born once, then you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. That's the beauty of this thing. So if you're born again, if you're regenerated through faith in Jesus Christ, you are adopted as a, as a son and daughter of God, that means that because of God's gracious work of redemption in Christ, we now become children of God and have the supreme joy of calling God our Father. Our Father. So we who were ruined by the fall, who stood under God's just condemnation because God is holy, God is just, remember? By grace, through, through faith in Jesus Christ, are able to address God as Father. Think, think of the tenderness of this whole thing. And listen finally this morning to the words of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Wonderfully reminds us how great is the love the Father has lavished. I love that word. Has lavished upon us. 
that we should be called children of God. Man, I don't know about you, but that, 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 that gets me fired up. Now, if you're here this morning and you're uncertain about your relationship with God, you always marvel at some of these uh, modern-day talk shows. You've got these people on there, and they've got these crazy stories of infidelity and unfaithfulness, all these things, and then, oh, it's got to somehow be determined whether you are the dad or you aren't, you know, that kind of, I mean, what is it? Mari Povich, or I don't even know if they're still on, but you know, it's just like this circus of craziness, you know, and ultimately finishes the show with this, you know, DNA paternity test kind of thing. You you may be here this morning spiritually, you're just kind of like, I think God's my father. I I think I'm adopted as one of His. I you don't have to leave here with that uncertainty. Because as you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it clear that His Holy Spirit indwells us to bear witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And you will find yourself being led by the Spirit progressively. Not perfectly, because we still live in the presence of sin, right? Still dealing with the old flesh and some of that. But the pattern of our lives should be a progressive Christ-likeness as children of God. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.